Welcome to episode 39 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this episode, I talk to Dr. Chase Cunningham of Ericom Software and the host of the Dr. Zero Trust podcast on cybersecurity proactivity and a host of other interesting topics like zero trust and how companies need to protect themselves. But before I get to that, a couple quick news stories of the week. Obviously, Colonial Pipeline continues to be in the news. The big news that came out today, actually, is that the Department of Justice was able to recover 2.3 of the $4.4 million that they paid, that, that over the ransom that was paid, which is interesting considering it was cryptocurrency. Um, the methodology that that was, was done, I don't think has been released yet, nor do I, I assume it will be, because the DOJ does not want the bad guys to figure out how they got their money. So that's kind of a positive news story regarding Colonial Pipeline. A non-positive story was the way that the bad guys got into the system. Now, I've talked about in the past that chances are someone clicked a link or did something they weren't supposed to. Not the case here. So I take that back from Colonial Pipeline. No employee clicked a link or did anything wrong. Well, someone did something wrong. The IT department did not actively um, disable user accounts when people left the company. The bad guys were able to use legitimate login credentials, likely obtained on the dark web that gave them access to a user account on the VPN that Colonial Pipeline employees could use to access the network remotely. Using these valid credentials, they got into the network and then were able to root around. They were probably in there for quite a while, figuring out how to pivot from one system on the network to another, to install the ransomware they needed to install, to steal files that they needed to steal to extort the company, things of that nature. And this goes to the problem of password reuse and the availability of legitimate password credentials online. And this brings us to our second article today. Uh, from This is from cybernews.com. Edvardis Mikolasukas, I, I apologize to him. I'm sure I mispronounced that last name. But it, the title of the, of the article is Rock You 2021, the largest password compilation of all time leaked online with 8.4 billion entries noted, basically meaning that on this particular 100 gigabit text file, there are 8.4 billion passwords, legitimate passwords used by someone at some point in the past. These range from 60 to 20 characters long uh, with non-ASCII characters and white spaces removed. So basically, if you're a bad guy, you just got 8.4. Um, actually, I take that back. It's uh, da, 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 8. I'm sorry, it's 8. Yeah, 8.4 billion legitimate passwords. So that allows bad guys to... Combine those passwords with legitimate login credentials from companies everywhere and figure out how to get into networks if those logins and passwords work together. How do you get around this? I've said it many times. I've probably said it on 38 previous podcasts that if you turn on multi-factor authentication, you pretty much eliminate the risk associated with password reuse. Not to say you should continue to use the same passwords. You should have different passwords for different accounts. They should be complicated simply because um, not that, you know, someone's sitting there guessing the password and trying to type it out, but it'll take technology a little longer to, you know, um, put together a password if it's got different character lengths. Now, there are those that will argue that the only the length matters 
The difference in the characters does not. Other red teamers I've talked to have said, well, look, if you at least use different symbols for different letters and things, it makes it harder for compiled password text files like this one to have that in there. So uh, again, password managers, you should use them. You should use it to generate long passwords. Makes it very easy for you to enter the passwords into your sites. Um, and it prevents what happened here with Colonial Pipeline. Chances are, as we go through the week, there will be more data breaches. Colonial Pipeline will soon fade from our memory, as will JBS Meats, the meat company got hit with ransomware. Um, your local hospital that probably got hit with ransomware, your local school district ransomware is here to stay, but it's really one of a variety of different cyber threats out there. Business email compromise, threats against seniors are much more problematic in the sense of amount of money loss than, um, say ransomware. But what Colonial Pipeline has shown is that a ransomware attack like that can have downstream repercussions that impact all of us directly, even if we're not part of, of Colonial Pipeline. So, uh, protect your passwords, browse smartly, uh, things we, we, we talk about all the time on this podcast. And we'll talk about a little bit of that with my guest. Well, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome to the podcast Dr. Chase Cunningham. He is the Chief Strategy Offer, Officer excuse me, of Ericom Software. He is a former NSA cryptologist, and hopefully he'll talk a little bit about that as best he can in an unclassified setting uh, and without we'll, getting myself in trouble <laughs> right exactly without without both of us going to jail uh and uh maybe talk a little bit about his uh phd and and the, the basis behind that so chase thank you very much for taking the time to be on the podcast yeah thanks it's not often you get to talk to the cyber guy so <laughs> well so self 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 uh self-provided title best for, for the <laughs> i use the bu because it's fbi related and so we were uh, we have a mutual <laughs> friend Corey munson from pc matic i think put us in touch because i was I've been on this hobby horse lately about companies not having a, a cybersecurity strategy and not being being always reactive versus proactive. And so he pushed me in your direction. You were gracious enough to uh, to come on and talk about those things. So let's start a little bit with your career arc. You have an impressive resume starting with the NSA as a cryptologist in the late 90s to your current C-suite position. So how'd you get started? I mean, obviously you probably didn't grow up thinking, well, I can't wait to help save the world from the cyber criminals. So how did it all start? Yeah. No, I, I tell uh, people all the time that, uh, you know, a lot of folks sort of joke about being blessed and meeting the right people along the way. And I'm, I am a billion percent evidence that um, sometimes you just get lucky. Um, I, I joined the Navy as a diesel mechanic. I'm a farm kid. I grew up on a farm uh, and through a series of, uh, Somewhat fortunate uh, events. I wound up running into the cryptologic officer at the ship, and he found out that I had a proclivity for things beyond checking engine oil. And uh, from there, I went on to do uh, the crypto stuff and then got busted up on my last deployment and medically retired in 2012. Uh, and then since then, I did a bunch of work for the federal government in Pensacola and other uh, areas, um, DC area and, and whatnot, and then uh, worked my way over again through just blind luck and good, good people, uh, to Forrester research and ultimately here to Ericom. Great. So, um, and we'll talk a little bit, I forgot to mention at the introduction, you're also the, um, producer and host of a new podcast called Dr. Zero Trust. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. So I want to make sure to, uh, pitch your podcast so folks can start heading that way and listen to the stuff you have to say. But, 
you know, like I said, some of the issues I've had recently, or not issues, but some of the hobby horses I jump on on LinkedIn have to do with people being more proactive. And I think the NSA generally has a more proactive mission than, say, my experience with the FBI, who's always just reactive. Some Something bad happens, we come out, and honestly, after 20 years, all I could really tell people from a cyber perspective is chances are no one's going to go to jail for hacking your system. You're probably not going to get your money back. And you should have been, you should have had a better strategy. We don't say that part, obviously, out loud. But uh, so, <laughs> so did you, did you find that to be the case? Was the NF, NSA in a good, in a more of a proactive position um, as cyber threats became more prevalent or were they catching up as well? Well, I mean, it's just like uh, any other sort of uh, agency, right, where obviously they're restricted by kind of the level of capability they can get uh, forward deployed. But I would say that the, you know, the NSA and, and the, the, the military component commands, they're, they're actually what make me sleep well at night because I know because I've been there that there are people on pause in dark rooms with no windows, banging away at keys and doing their job to push the adversary back into the, the you know nether regions of the internet. Now, does that mean that we win every time all the time? Hell no. But does it mean that we're, you know, giving it the best we can? Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, I think people need to remember that. And I, I tell people this during workshops all the time, is you got to remember the U.S., like we're an APT too, right? Russia and China are not yeah. the only ones. We, we are an APT as well. Trust me, mm-hmm. we are deeply engaged in doing things that you won't ever know about. Right. And there's, and obviously there's a, there's a reason behind that. And I think like, like you say, yeah, I, I think the same way that I get a lot of people, I, people ask me, well, aren't we doing the same thing? And you know, how can you think that we're not? I mean, it's not like we, we are kind of in the forefront of most areas. So you got to think that from a cyber perspective, we got smart guys doing smart things as well. So the problem I think with the government is once you get too smart for it, then private sector comes along and offers you a lot more money. And then suddenly they forget, all the stuff they learned when they go out there. Cause I mean, let, let's go to the proactive part of it. And why do you think companies don't really have that proactive thought process? What is their issue? Well, you know, I, this is where I, I sympathize and I, I try and put myself in the perspective position of, uh, of being like one of those C-suite leaders that's trying to do the right thing. And, and I, normally most of the folks that I've run into, like they're trying to do what they can with what they have. However, like you said, this is a cost center, right? Cybersecurity is a cost center. And in business, you're always looking for where you can cut costs. And people will always look at the spreadsheet and go, yeah, can we kind of not, you know, do that? Because it's expensive. And isn't there another way? And da, da, da. and it, it becomes a, a, a sort of rigmarole of that back and forth. And, um, you know, I, I actually interviewed for a CISO position with a big company before I, uh, I left Forrester and came over to Aircom. And after I talked with them about what I wanted to do and the plan I was getting put in place, before I even got the offer, they were starting to nitpick it and sort of pull pieces out of the strategy. Mm-hmm. And as, by the time we got to that, I was like, I don't care what you're offering me. I'm not going to be your scapegoat, right? I'm not going to walk into your failure. And that brings me to an interesting question. I've never asked anyone on this podcast, but you hear a lot about CIOs and CISOs. Explain the difference to, for, for folks that don't really know the difference. You would think that CIOs would think about these things a lot, but they seem to delegate all of these cybersecurity components down to a CISO level. Yeah, and that's that's part of a problem, too, where CIOs, chief information officer, their thing is really more about the information, the data itself, kind of the way that it's used, the value of the data, those types of things. The great job position, really interesting stuff. CISOs are chief information security officers. And 
there's and it's it's kind of starting to level out, but for the longest time it's been CIO tells the CISO what will and won't be the thing in the space. Now we're starting to see that kind of level up, which is good. We need that. But to, to your point, one of the things that I was unwilling to negotiate when I was interviewing with this job was I, I was like, I report to the CEO. Like I'm not reporting to the CIO. And if that's if that's not gonna work, then non starter. Right. And that's interesting. So your position is chief strategy officer. So how does that differ from the other two? And I think honestly, so me, before before you answer that, I think more more companies need to have that position. Quite frankly, based on what we're seeing across the stratosphere here. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I'll, I'll also caveat like when 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 I when the chief strategy officer, like I'm I'm responsible for strategy across the board, right? So for sales, for marketing, for execution, for partnerships, whatever, and IT security and the different things that are part of that as well. However, we have people, our chief technology officer, and other people that manage, maintain, and control the security apparatus of the company. And that's their thing. And it's great for uh, me as a strategy guy to kind of say like, look, this is a strategy that makes the most sense. And this is kind of how we might look at this particular issue. And then they solve the problem, which I think is where it needs to be. You need, like you said, I think you need a strategy officer to kind of be an input machine and constantly take your things in, chew on it, and then just kind of offer, you know, this is what uh, we should be considering and this is how we might look at this issue and then let people do their jobs and actually fix the problem. That's perfect. Yeah, that's great. Perfect. Great points. Great points. So you're the first PhD I've had on the show. So thank you for that. So I've, uh-huh. I've broken the, I've broken the PhD, uh, the ceiling. So I read the abstract of your thesis and, and I think it fits into our discussion here. Specifically, there's a, there's a line there where you said there is quoting, there's historically little, if any technologies or practices that seek to combine technical precursors or anomalous actions would define human behavioral modeling in order to identify and isolate an insider before they conduct a malicious activity. And as we know, insiders can be both those that you have hired in that become disgruntled and those that are outside, they get access. And once they're inside, then they become insiders. Now I tried to find your thesis so I could read it today, but I couldn't locate it. I didn't, I, so I'm not sure if it's published and it's I easy to find. A copy. Yeah. It'd, that'd it'd be, be good for putting you to sleep. <laughs> yeah, hey, still, still fun to read. Cause I posted, I have a master's capstone, not quite as good as obviously nowhere near a thesis level, but I posted on LinkedIn just for, just to annoy people. So, Hey, if you're bored, you want to sleep, I say the same thing, go ahead and read that. But so since you've received your PhD, have you found that there are technologies now that meet the model you imagined? Yeah, there's been a lot of development in the space. I mean, I was, I, I wrote my dissertation and those things back, gosh, I, I finished in 2014. So seven years ago. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of things around insider threat and sort of analytics and, you know, data modeling for when people were going to do things, which, which was cool for me because it meant I was doing sort of first of research, but now there's a whole lot of that in the space. You see stuff from Code 42 and Exabeam and Mimecast and inside, uh, onto, I mean, there's all kinds of different companies that have started scratching at that itch. Uh, and it, a lot of it's really, really solid technology from people that are a billion times more adept at what they're doing than I ever was. Yeah, and I find that it seems like insider threat, even though, especially across the DIB and DOD, it's mandated. You have to have an insider threat program. It seems like most companies are just, what's the minimum I can get away with this and still check that box under that priority to do insider threat. But, and I, I may be wrong on this, but like DIB and DOD are the only ones that mandate insider threats. Do you think more? So, and one thing I didn't notice in the executive order after colonial pipeline that the president put out, didn't say anything about insider threat within there. Is that an area that we're, we're missing out on that, 
not that necessarily government needs to mandate it, but companies should should look at that. It's another going to be another loss leader, but still something that at the end of the day, if you've put the right resources into it, it's going to prevent you loss down the road. Yeah, I don't I don't think you have a valid excuse anymore as a company to say that you're not looking at what's going on in the context of business operations and know that there's potential avenues for compromise there. And if there are, act accordingly. And it's not, you know, the days of us having this sort of draconian invasion of privacy, you know, kludgy, weird, crazy uncle looking over your shoulder thing, that's that's gone. Now it's really about telemetry, data, analytics. And if I get you know, 10 indicators of you doing something malicious on my system, I have every right to go off and at least ask you what's up, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's just how it's supposed to be. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's just no longer valid, in my opinion, to go, well, we're not looking at what our employees are doing. And don't invade their privacy because you don't have to if the technology is good. But you have every right, if you're cutting that person a paycheck, to at least know what they're doing in the context of a business operations. Yeah, you're right though. I think it, it, it seems like there's a fear of making people angry or like, like they're going to see you. We, it's, yeah. They're making people uncomfortable that you're monitoring what they're doing. And I tell people this all the, you know, I mean, you you were at FBI, right? So I tell people all the time when they freak out about me working at NSA, I'm like, your credit card company and Facebook know more about you than we ever would. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. Exactly. Well, and let's use the, the Kansas city analysts that just got, got um, arrested for insider threat. Well, espionage, really. Mm-hmm. 10 years. She was doing it for 10 years. I think I have that. It was a long freaking time. Someone knew she mm-hmm. was doing that. It's not that hard to go through the FBI system and see what she was printing out. I think it was a she. But, and so it's the same thing there. No one wants to, yeah, I don't want to risk, I don't want to be that person that incorrectly accused someone of doing that. I mean, we had espionage cases here in Huntsville. We fell ass backwards into them simply because someone said, Hey, this doesn't look right. I should tell somebody without someone telling somebody we never would have known. You know, I mean, Snowden, somebody should have picked up on that. I mean, mm-hmm. reality winner, like all these other Robert Hansen, there's all these other yeah. people that were doing things that you, if it wasn't in this sort of ethereal cybery sort of area, you would freak out if you saw somebody backing a truck up to drive, you know, uh, papers out of your business. But because it's cyber and it was on a, you know, hard drive, right. okay, yeah, or a, or a, a CD that said Lady Gaga was a uh, later music, Lady whatever. Gaga. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So, so what strategies do you think the corporate world needs to start incorporating to change their mindset so that they become more proactive? Well, I mean, I think we have we have a decision point where if we look at the old paradigm, the castle and moat sort of perimeter based model, we have 30, 40 years to really validate that that's not going to suffice in the way that we're going today. And if you continue to engage in that, you are choosing to engage in a failed process. So that's number one. I like to remind people that number two, zero trust is a strategy that is being mentioned for very valid reasons from the highest office in the land as part of a a, a way to address the problem. And it's a strategy. So let's be real about that, right? There is no zero trust button. There is no zero trust, you know, wiggle your nose and your magically secure thing. But there are ways to enable that strategy. And so so you brought up zero trust. So let's talk about that for a bit. Because that seems to be, there's always code words in cybersecurity or something. Always some oh, know, yeah. encryption or multi-factor authentication. Because we sound smart with all of our acronyms. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So let's, use, let's, let's talk about zero trust. I'm sure people have heard of it. And I know that, like you said, they mentioned it in the executive order, but I don't think they defined it. So your company says you're the leading provider of zero trust, secure web and application access solutions that protect organizations. 
from advanced cybersecurity threats. That's a mouthful, not to be to be honest. But like so, hundred other companies, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. So define zero trust for me. If, I, if for for most of the folks that are listening to this, probably have not heard of zero trust. What is the concept behind that, um, and how does how does a company incorporate that into their security model? So well, being from Texas, I always tell people the, the redneck in me says the simplest way to put it is don't trust nothing, right? I mean, that's a pretty yep. cut and dry thing of, of understanding. But let me let me take you out of the cyber world for a second and actually kind of wake people up to this reality. Since COVID kicked off, you've been living zero trust, whether you knew it or not. And what I mean by that is you have not engaged with people that you don't know are vaccinated, most of us, right? You don't go and shake hands with folks without washing your hands. You have stayed away from crowds because of community spread. All these things that we've done to take care of our families and ourselves have actually been living in a zero trust model because it deals with the proliferation of the infection, which is exactly what we're dealing with in cybersecurity. I can live with one individual being infected. Sucks for them. I cannot live with my entire infrastructure being infected. So how does, so if I'm a company, how do I incorporate that methodology? Let's say, so let's say I'm already, I've already, let's, let's say I'm a 20 year, a 20 year company. I've got all my stuff. I've got windows 10 running. I've got my servers and all that stuff. Every printer is interconnected. I let my employees install their Alexa speakers so they can listen to Spotify, which is a genius move. I actually had a company call me and say, Hey, do you have any documentation I can use to show my leadership? We shouldn't allow Alexa speakers on our network. So that's the dib company asking me that question. That was awesome. So how do, yeah. how does a company get to the zero trust level? Cause right now, they're not, they're at, we trust everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the, the, uh, anathema to what we're trying to do, right. Is a computer systems in perfection are a trusted environment, but mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of where we want to get to. But in order to get to more trust, we have to remove the trust we shouldn't have. And the way that you can do that first is think about where you're most likely to have a compromise occur and how it will cause infection to proliferate in the system. And, I hate to break it to people, but never in the history of exploitation has a firewall suddenly become infected by itself and then <laughs> let electrons move back and forth. Somewhere somebody had a bad username, a password, clicked on something. Da, 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 da. So in my opinion and experience, you fix the users first with technical controls, and then you work your way from the core of your infrastructure to the outside of it. And that sounds different, but that's the way that makes the most sense. So one thing I've thought to myself, if I was to start my own network, I would not allow personal email on my network. Yet most companies say, yeah, check your Yahoo, check your Gmail. How bad is that plan? If it were me and I was starting a new company, I would move us all to either uh, O365 or G Suite, and I would live in that environment. And the reason I say that is they spend a billion dollars a year plus on security infrastructure. And there are ways that you can leverage that more effectively than you can do by yourself. And what we're, what we really are trying to to get around here is misconfiguration, eating your lunch. Um, You know, having configured uh, email servers and things like that in the past, it's not the easiest thing to do. I would much rather use G suite or O three sixty five. But how does that pre- pre- how does that prevent the issue with password reuse? There was just I just saw an article today, um, eighty billion passwords comprom- or listed a, a list of of passwords listed out for for use, um, and that's how they got into Colonial Pipeline was through a an old VPN account that wasn't turned off with legitimate credentials. So if I'm using Office three sixty five, 
how does that prevent that particular occurrence? If I, if someone has valid well, credentials, aren't they going to get in anyway? It won't prevent it necessarily, but if you do things like couple in multi-factor authentication, mm-hmm. you couple in good asset management inventory, and you have a program around it to review who's actually on the system, you're better off than you would be trying with something and getting a massive misconfiguration issue. So um, to your point, you're a thousand percent right. It's not the uh, turn it on perfect solution, but there are things you can couple in there that will help you eliminate that risk or minimize that risk, I should say. I got you. So what do you tell you? So I assume you're your technical support for your family. So what do you tell your family? What do you tell your family members? I tell them, my family, actually, I set them all up on G Suite. I mean, we run G Suite and my kids use Chromebooks. And I mean, that's that's where we go from there, because number one, I'm a cheapskate. (laughs) And uh, number two, it's easy for me to manage. Okay. So how do you see the cyber landscape changing in the near term and the long term? Obviously, ransomware, it's weird for, for me as a, as a former FBI guy looking at stats and stuff that, and part of this is my lack of faith in the media, but ransomware is everywhere. Everybody's ran, ransom, end of the world. Ransomware, you know, we have 12 years for climate change. We've got two years before ransomware takes everybody down probably. Yet, if you look at a lot, the loss amounts, business email compromise dwarfs it by 20 times. Yet no one talks about that because it's hard to understand, obviously. It's not so, sexy. Exactly. Yeah. So where pull out your crystal ball and, and project the future. For the, well, I mean, I think in the near, in the very near term, what we're actually finally waking up to is that the general population is aware that this cyber thing is actually real in their own lives. And it's not just a bunch of geeks screaming about, like you said, you know, the end of the world is coming. We're letting you know, like, no, this is for real. Like, no BS. This is a problem. And this can cause outages that will make you suffer. And that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the far end, uh, where I think we're going is that we're going to continue to see the uh, impact of these types of operations as they continue to go more specialized. And, you know, we saw a pipeline. We've seen a meatpacking thing. We've seen a couple of others. Um, you can sort of tell that the uh, the glide slope is narrowing as the adversary is picking their targets to go you know further down the rabbit hole. So one of the things I talk a lot about is technology is not going to save us, but it's got to be a combination of technology and education somewhere. There's got to be there's a there's a combination in there that seems to make that work. And one of my other current hobby horses I've been talking a lot about till I'm blue in the face on LinkedIn, yet no one seems to take me up on it is. We seem to have an education issue, and I'm curious to get your your take on education. So obviously a lot of companies do, the FBI does this, I'm sure the NSA did it. Here's your information security training for the year. Watch this PowerPoint, take this test, pass it, and you're good. You can worry about it again in a year from now. None of that works. I think for most companies, you your employees will look at that. I took it last year. How quickly can I get through the PowerPoint? I don't have to worry about it again. I think wait, wait, we, wait, wait. Yeah, I think we need to change the methodology, the paradigm of how we educate people on cyber. You don't educate them all at once. You give them little bits and pieces periodically, maybe once or twice a month, talk about ransomware for 10 minutes, talk about business email compromise, talk about protecting their kids online. Do you think that has any traction that would be worthwhile or would it just be another thing that people would jump through? Uh, I think it could be helpful. I mean, I'm a fan personally of drip campaigns and Mm -hmm. stuff because it makes you continually, you know, think through that. I, but I, I would also counter with, I, I don't think that we have any evidence or data to show us that at the end of the whole cycle that you can fix certain people, right? Some people just 
do what they're going to do. People smoke cigarettes, even though they know it might give them cancer. People drive without seatbelts, even though they know if they get in a wreck, they're more likely to die. Like all those, all those things. Um, so I, you know, there's, there's this percentage of humans that I, I, and I, I, I'm the guy that says it, like, I can't fix you like personally, but I can fix you technically. And mm-hmm. that's where I think we need controls to be built around them. And the technology exists nowadays where I can put it in front of you and you, I may not be able to be a thousand percent certain that I never saw a compromise, but I can definitely reduce your ability to infect my network. That's a great point. Do you want to give your chocolate milk story? I, I read that online. So I thought I, I, I like that. There's a great analogy. I'm going to, I'm going to steal it, but I'll give you all the attribution yeah, going forward. Go ahead, please. I, I, I mean, I, I was reading through, cause I, I, I just love, you know, research. And I was reading through some research about, um, you know, people and sort of the way that they continue to do things that are not necessarily the most intelligent. And then I found this study where they launched a pilot. It was an actual survey. And they said, does chocolate milk come from brown cows? That was basically the study. And 7% of the population said, yes, it comes from brown cows. And it was like, well, wait a minute. If you think about that in the context of the United States, that's the entire population of Pennsylvania that basically thinks that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. And then I said, well, where does strawberry milk come from? Because that's even more concerning. <laughs> yeah. And I think the, the other part of I've read on your article, then you said, if I can't convince people that chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows, how am I going to give them stuff clicking on links and emails? I can't. I mean, yeah. It's, and I, you know, when I was pen testing, I I can't tell you the number of times when I was pen testing that I had been to a site no less than seven days after a fishing training, and we just lit them up. You know, you send mm-hmm. people pictures of my favorite was puppies. If I sent people puppies, I was going to get a click. Yeah, I had a company I talked to once, and they were talking about their fishing testing. They were very proud. They we do fishing testing. We we you know we we educate people. They don't click that. We only had eight percent failure rate except for the one person who clicked the link 42 times. Why is this not yeah. working? So it's, yeah. And it's 8% failure when, when I mean, in reality, when you look at it for most midsize enterprises, they, they are looking at, I think the number was like two years worth of loss based on a compromise. Right. So are you willing to risk two years of loss over 8% of your business? Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about your podcast, Dr. Zero Trust. Uh, What's the concept behind it? Where do people find it? And what's the, what are future episodes going to have on it? Yeah. So I, I, I have a newsletter that I send out every week. That's just unbiased. Like I spend the weekend doing research on the, the market and try and cobble together the non vendor stuff and sort of say like, look, here's, here's what happened last week. Check this out. And I had a bunch of people email me and DM me saying, I love the newsletter, but I don't have time to sit down and read the articles. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll just spend 20 minutes and kind of burn through that and give you a podcast on that topic area. And that's, that's really the crux of it is 30 minutes or less, the news from the week before straight up cybersecurity, no vendor pitching, whatever else, just literally, this is what's up. Great. So where do you find it? It's on Spotify. Uh, and I'm trying to get it on the other podcast things, but it's a, uh, it's a, a process. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I noticed that myself. It took a little while to figure out how to get it on all the different platforms, but, but yeah, Dr. Zero Trust, uh, I know it's on anchor FM.FM and on Spotify. So those are the two places you can find it. So Chase, I very much appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me. That's a great conversation. Um, if you have your thesis, send it. I'll be happy to read it. Um, it may take me a little while to read. I won't read it all in one you, sitting. Yeah, but... The other person, myself, yeah, you and me would be the ones that read it. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Uh, and uh, again, I appreciate it. Thanks so much and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. Good stuff. All right, thanks. Thanks.
So once again, I want to thank Dr. Chase Cunningham for participating on the podcast today. Uh, You can check out his podcast, Dr. Zero Trust, on Anchor.fm and Spotify currently. He's got a couple episodes on there, and they are good, quick listens. Um, He's a much smarter guy than I am, so please go ahead and take a look for his podcast. As you go through your week, remember, if you need to contact me, feel free to hit me up, Darren at thecyberguy.com. Find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash IN slash Darren Mott, all one word there. And as you go through your week, know that knowledge is protection. And if you understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk and proceed wisely. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your week.